We're going to be in Luke chapter 8. And for the last several weeks, we have been learning about the inheritance that God has prepared for you and for me in Christ. I want you to know today that God, this great king that we sang about when he created you, he looked at you and he prepared an inheritance for you. You're significant. You are thought about. The king of all has looked at you and provided for you. And we've seen three inheritances right here in the gospel of Luke, right here in Luke 8, that Jesus wants to give us in him. Number one is the gift of the gospel. We've seen that we receive the good news of the kingdom of God in Christ. What a gift. What an inheritance. Second one is the gift of testimony, that when we come into Christ, God is at work in our lives, and that he gives us a story of transformation in our own lives, of ways we've experienced and encountered him. And then he uses our story to glorify himself, to push back darkness, and to help other people. What an inheritance. Third inheritance that we received is the gift of friendship with Jesus. That Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. That Jesus desires to walk in friendship with us as a part of our inheritance in Christ. Today we're going to see our fourth inheritance, the gift of financial wisdom. I don't know a single person alive that doesn't want more wisdom in relation to their finances. And what we see is in Christ, we are given access to financial wisdom. So let's look at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. This is our last week on this passage. Uh, And here's what the Word of God says. After this, meaning after these miracles, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That was our first inheritance, the good news of the gospel. The 12 were with him. That was our inheritance of friendship with Jesus, that their lives were marked by being with him, both the men and the women. Uh, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, was with him. And we learned about her story and the transformation that she encountered, her testimony. And we saw our inheritance of testimony. And where we're going to focus today is in verse 3. Joanna the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others were with Jesus. These women were helping to support them, meaning Jesus and the work of the kingdom, out of their own means. Now, what I want you to see here as we look at this passage of Scripture is that this is very controversial. In Jesus' day, what's going on here, everywhere they went would have raised eyebrows would have put question marks in people's mind, would have caused, stirred up controversy. Jesus is controversial. Jesus is counter-cultural. And what I want you to see here is that the presence of these women in this discipleship community, the presence of men and women together in this community that Jesus was building would have been very controversial in Jesus' day, and I would argue even in our day. In Jewish culture, it was very patriarchal, meaning male-oriented, male-dominated. And the way that broke down was that every day, men had a fixed prayer that they would pray, thank you, God, 
that I am not a woman. Now, I've prayed that prayer myself four times in my life. We have four kids, and each time I see my wife pregnant and then give birth to a child, I'm like, there's just no way I could like do that. Thank you, God, that I'm not a woman because I just couldn't. Ladies, hats off to you. Unbelievable. I prayed that prayer out of humility, knowing I don't have what it takes. This prayer that they were doing was not out of humility. It was out of pride. It was, thank you, God, that I am a man, not a, a woman. Like it was a prideful prayer. Uh, women could not divorce their husbands, but men could divorce their wives for a wide variety of reasons, including something as small as burning dinner. One rabbi said that there was no reason for a woman to leave the house unless it was to go to the synagogue. Uh, another one said that it would be better for the Torah, the, the, the scripture, to be burned than to fall into the hands of a woman. So very patriarchal society that resulted in women being belittled, being minimized, being thought of as kind of second or even third rate kind of uh, citizens, if that. And here we have Jesus coming along, and he's doing something very, very different that we need to make sure that we see. Jesus does not treat women in that way. Jesus sees and acknowledges and, and lifts up for us all that women, like men, are made in the image of God. That men are made in the image of God, and women alongside men are made in the image of God. And that both of them are designed by God with value, with purpose, with significance, with calling. And we see Jesus over and over and over again treating women in this way and restoring our vision. Sin taints our vision and corrupts our vision. Jesus is restoring our vision to the dignity of both men and women. Very countercultural. Very controversial in Jesus' day. That's who Jesus is. He lifts people up. He, he demonstrates the image of God that is put into people, both male and female. In the kingdom, gender is valuable. Men are valuable. Women are valuable. And both are image bearers of God. So it's important that we see that's what's going on here is this community of men and women being disciples to Jesus. It would have been offensive in the communities that Jesus was in. It would have been upsetting. It would have been room for accusation, room for criticism. And I also want to point out that Luke is very intentional not just to highlight these women, but over and over and over in the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which he also wrote, we see the prominent role, the significant role that women play in God's plan to save the world. We've met Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist. We've met Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. We've met Anna, who was the intercessor who brought about the, 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 the coming of Jesus. Uh, we met, let's see, who else have we met? The first person healed by Jesus, the first person to experience a miracle of Jesus was not a man, but it was a woman. It was Peter's mother-in-law. We've seen the, the, the widow's son who died and was Jesus raised to life that the main character of that story is not the son, it's the widow. She's the one that's on center stage. We've seen the sinful woman that anointed Jesus uh, with 
her tears and perfume, right? She was the hero of what it looked like to worship. And here we have a number of women playing prominent roles. Note that Luke does not say these women were just kind of part of the fan club. They were just around the, the, the outskirts of the community. They were just there to kind of set up and tear down. No, what does he say in verse 3? This, they don't have a minor part. He says this. These women were helping to support them out of their own means, meaning these women were using their financial resources to fund the kingdom of God going forward in their generation. That's significant contribution. These women are not minor characters. They're major characters. They're very important, and they're very significant. And we, as the people of God, want to see the image of God in both male and female and honor that. So Luke is pointing that out. They're contributors, and they're significant. Now, that's not the only thing that's controversial uh, in this passage of Scripture. The other thing that's controversial is just when you think about, wait, these women were taking their resources and out of their discipleship to Jesus, their priorities and their finances and the way that they thought about money and the way they spent their money and the way they used their money was being rearranged and now they're giving their money to Jesus for the expansion of the kingdom? I don't know. Like we just get a little queasy when that subject comes up. Right? We hear Jesus lifting up women. Yeah, Jesus is awesome. Jesus rearranges our finances. Oh, pastor, do we have, let's just skip over to the next passage of scripture. That makes me feel a little uncomfortable. What we see, though, is that every disciple of Jesus that we're going to encounter in the gospel of Luke, every disciple has this same type of, of transformation in their lives. Peter, James, and John, we met them. They encountered Jesus in power in their workplace. And as a fruit of their discipleship to Jesus, the priority of their work and their business got rearranged. So it was not all about, you know, how much can I make and how successful can my business be? They were turned into different types of people. Matthew, the tax collector, spent his whole life on greed, right? And he gives that up to give his life to others generously. And here we see these women taking the resources they've had out of their encounter with Jesus, their priorities and their finances being rearranged, and now they're giving to him. You know, and if you saw someone doing that, you'd be like, why, why are you doing that? Are you get, is this like an investment that you get a return on? Has Jesus promised you like a 12% return that you take your resources and he's going to give you back that plus 12% at the end of the year? Like, is that what's going on? He's going to be like, no, there, there's no, there's no return on this money. Um, okay. Uh, well, are you, is this like dues? Is this like membership dues that you have to pay to be a part of the group? No, Jesus came to us on our own and invited us in and oh, we don't have to do that. Well, why are you doing that? Why are you living that way? Why are you using your resources like that? Very controversial. What would they say? We believe in this. We believe this is important. We believe this matters. We believe this is worth us leveraging our life to see happen. Very controversial, very upsetting, very, ooh, I don't know if I like that, is the reaction that all of us, if we're honest, 
probably feel right now. Why is that? Why is when we hear Jesus lifts up women, we're like, yeah. When we hear Jesus transforms our finances so that we give them away, are we like, ooh, why is that? I want to share with you a bit of history that I think helps us understand what's formed you and me in the area of our finances. I want to acknowledge that this summer I listened to a talk by a pastor in New York City named John Tyson. I really appreciate talking about this topic, and and I was so impacted by it, I've been thinking about this for months. And as I was praying and preparing for this week and saw this, I really drew on a lot of his work, added my own research, but I just want to acknowledge where it came from. I'm sure he got it from someone else, but just want to give credit where credit is due. I want to share with you a little bit of history about what's formed you and me. In 1929, America experienced a significant event in our history. Anybody know what that event was? Great Depression. 1929, stock market crashes, economy falls, and for the next 11 years, we go through the worst recession, the the hardest economic times that we've known in our history, the Great Depression. And if you had a a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent who lived through the Great Depression, you know the effects even 30, 40, 50, 60 years removed that it had on them. It scarred people for life. I was talking to my dad about this, and he was telling me about my grandfather would, um, I had forgotten this, but my grandfather lived through the Great Depression, and coming out of that, he was like, I've got to save money. I've got to save everything I can, because you don't know when the next Great Depression is going to hit. So he was trying to save everything. He would try and save Coke bottles and just stockpile them at his house, save newspapers. Uh, Christina's grandparents, my wife, they went through the Great Depression. They would save old peanut butter jars because they never knew when the next one was coming and they needed to hold on to it. They needed to be ready. And so a generation was marked by this trauma that they had been through that made us want to hold on to everything that we had. 1941, uh, World War II, kind of America enters in, uh, into, in 41 or 42, enters into World War II, right? And that pulls our economy out of the pits. It revives our economy through the jobs that were created. And post-World War II, we had a generation of people who had lived through the Great Depression, who had lived through World War II and had all this like years and years and years of withholding because of how much stress was going on. Now the soldiers come back from World War II, they get married and they have babies and we have what's called the baby boomer generation, right? It was the largest generation in American history because there had been all this kind of pent up, like we've put off having kids because it's just uncertain and the world is falling apart. And now, oh wait, it's a time of peace and prosperity. So actually worldwide was a baby boom. But in America, we have the baby boomer generation, record number of babies being born. And whereas other countries were trying to rebuild from the war, we had wide open space in front of us. We were a world power and we had an economy that was doing well. This is the 1950s. 
And in that season of American life in the 1950s, there were some ideas that had been germinating for a while that began to be uh, engaged with in our society. The first one being politicians, economists, business leaders had, had figured out or put forth a theory that said the power of a nation, the prominence of a nation was connected to the strength of the economy. Strong nations had strong economies. Strong economies were predicated on strong production. The nations that produced a lot of resources had strong economies. Strong production was predicated on strong consumption. Nations that bought and purchased and consumed things, that drove production. Production drove the economy. The economy drove the strength of the nation. So question, how for a generation that has been scarred by the Great Depression that wants to save everything, how do we transform that generation and the subsequent generations away from save, 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 save to consume, 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 consume? In 1927, Paul Mazur of the Lehman Brothers articulated this kind of thought of what needed to happen. He said this, he said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. Meaning we need to shift away America from thinking, well, I just need to buy what I need. I need to be pragmatic. I need to buy just kind of what makes sense to a culture that's dominated by our desires. Not what do I need, but what do I want? People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in American man's desires. Desires must overshadow his needs. We must shape a new mentality in the mind of Americans so that our desires overshadow, overreach, overstretch our, our, want, our needs. That's what he said needed to happen. And so a plan was put in place, a very specific plan that had a number of uh, facets. And I want to share those with you. Again, because this is what has formed us today. The first area was in the realm of marketing and advertising. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Edward Bernays who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. If you remember in your psychology class or your philosophy class, Freud kind of studied man's deeper desires, man's subconscious desires. Freud took what he learned from his uncle and applied it in the realm of advertising and marketing. And what he did, and this is really significant, it didn't exist before then, but instead of marketing products based on their functional utility, based on their pragmatic value, he introduced an idea in marketing of not marketing off pragmatism or what's needed, but connecting products to identity, connecting products to status, connecting products to purpose. So that he positioned things, if you bought this, it said something about who you are. It said something about your value, your purpose, your identity, your worth. One example was he was the one that branded cars from just being like, do I need a car to you know, do my job or to get around my city or whatever, to it was masculine to like cars. If you were a real man, you liked cars. 
If you were a real man, you purchased cars. If you were a real man, you were really into cars so that men sitting around would think, man, I, I want to be a real man. I want people to know I'm a real man. I guess I should be into cars, right? It was not about a car for pragmatic purposes. It was a status symbol. It was an identity piece. It was something that gave your life meaning and worth. For women, he wanted to get women to smoke cigarettes and sell to women. And so what he branded was smoking cigarettes was not just kind of, do you like to smoke cigarettes? It was, this was a sign that you were a liberated modern woman by smoking cigarettes, right? So he connected the product to a deeper statement about value and worth and what it said about who you were, not just, well, do I need this or not? In our world today, that is the way that advertising and marketing works. You go home today, you watch YouTube uh, or you know, the TV or whatever it may be, and you see those ads, and they're marketing to you, connecting the product to it making you into a certain type of person, giving you a certain identity or status symbol or worth. That was in the realm of marketing. In the realm of uh, manufacturing, they developed obsolescence theories. Now, what this is, uh, they had both planned and perceived obsolescence. So planned obsolescence was, well, uh, to use a kind of example we can probably all connect with, I could make an iPhone that lasts, you know, 10 years and works well. But if I do that, my business isn't going to make it uh, because no one will buy a new phone for 10 years. So I need to make phones that even though I could make them last longer, I need to plan for them to be obsolete to reinforce consumption. There's always another one that I need to buy. So actually, Apple got hit with a lawsuit because they slow down the older phones. As the phone gets older and older, it's designed to slow down and function so that it forces you to say, man, I need a new phone. That thing that you've wondered about is, why is my phone all of a sudden so slow? Like, it's an actual fact. It's not in your head. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a literal thing they do to create a desire to consume. That's planned obsolescence. Are you, guys, are you guys with me? Are you tracking with me? Okay, everybody experienced this, right? Perceived obsolescence is you come out with a new model of something. Again, we'll use the iPhone as an example. We can pick hundreds of things. You come out with a new model that's not really different than the previous model, one or two small features, but now there's a new model. So now you perceive, man, what I have is really kind of, old, it's outdated. Yeah, I, I need to get the new thing. This is with cars all the time, the new model that looks like the old model, but now, well, mine's last year's model. I really need the new deal. Perceived obsolescence, planned obsolescence. So in the 1950s, these were introduced again to rewire the American mind that we would move from what do I need to what do I want. That we would move to an idea thinking that the good life the life that we were designed to live, a life of identity and purpose and meaning, that that came through what we could buy, what we could purchase, what we could acquire. It was intentional, a shift to transform our nation so that we would consume. The credit industry, the banking industry, 1950s is when credit cards were rolled out to the masses with the idea of buy now, pay later right? Giving us the tools literally so that our desires could outstrip our needs. So we'd have the power to be able to consume whatever it is we felt like we needed to 
consume. Robert Sarnoff, who was the president of NBC in 1956, so about 30 years removed from Paul Mazur saying this is what we need to do, spoke on what has happened, 1950s. And he says this, he said, the reason we, America, has such a high standard of living is because advertising has created, created an American frame of mind that makes people want more things, better things, and newer things. So he acknowledges the power of this advertising has shifted our nation to say, man, I want something new. I want something better. I want an upgrade. It turned us into these rabid consumers. Dr. Amitai Etizoni of George Washington University, speaking about this, uh, said this, that there is an obsession with acquisition that has become the organizing principle of American life. Get that. Obsession with acquisition is the organizing principle of our nation. We disagree on so many things, right? We disagree on Supreme Court justices. We disagree on uh, politics. We disagree on food preferences. We disagree on religion. We disagree on how we should relate in the world. We disagree on so many things. In fact, there's a huge debate at what unites America. What are our common values? You know, and the social studies answer is, well, isn't it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Maybe. But what he's saying is the one thing that unites every American, and I think if you lived here a while, you would say, yeah, that's true, is our obsession with acquiring new and better things. What unites us is that we are consumeristic. It's the organizing principle of American life. Now he goes on to say, and this is really important to get an accurate understanding of this concept. He says this, this is not the same thing as capitalism, nor is it the same thing as consumption. To explain the difference, it's useful to draw on Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. You might remember that from a psychology class as well. At the bottom of this hierarchy are basic creature comforts, and once those are sated, more satisfaction is drawn from affection, self-esteem, and finally, self-actualization. As long as consumption is focused on satisfying basic human needs like safety, shelter, food, clothing, healthcare, and education, it's not consumerism. But when on attempts to satisfy these higher needs through the simple acquisition of goods and services, consumption turns into consumerism, and consumerism becomes a social disease. So what's he saying? He's saying, hey, working hard to acquire things for your basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, not a problem. That's fine. When we stop trying to acquire things just to take care of our basic needs, and we start looking at things as the sacraments through which we can experience salvation, When it's, oh, if I could just have that, then I would be significant. If I could have that, then I would have status. If I could have that, then I would be a real man. If I could have that, then I would be a liberated woman. When we start turning things into meaning makers, he said it destroys us. Now, what does he mean? I'm going to in just a second. I'm just getting warmed up. What does that mean? Why would he say this is a social disease? Okay, so think about this. When we live this way, our capacity for joy is eroded because joy 
is always around the corner in that next thing I need. So I'm never joyful now. I need something out there. As a parent, I see this all the time in my kids. And if I'm honest, I see this all the time in me. If I could just get that thing, then I'll have joy. So my ability to experience joy here and now, something we all want, is eroded when I buy into the lie that the pathway to joy is through the next thing that I can buy. And then you buy that thing, and it's like, oh, I bought the new model iPhone, and then the next day they release the next new model, and you're like, well, now I'm back in the same position I was. I have the old iPhone. And you're not satisfied. There's no joy. Our peace is robbed because we have to think about, I got to get the next thing. My life depends on it. I was at Panera Bread uh, two weeks ago, Saturday morning early. I was doing some work. Normally I review Sunday on Saturday evening, but I had some stuff Saturday evening, so I was there early in the morning. And I was sitting next to these guys who were in the booth next to me. They were talking loudly about their finances. And they were talking about the secret bank accounts that they had that their wives didn't know about so they could save extra money that their wife wouldn't be aware of. They were talking about in their, in their work, though they had good jobs, they were on a partner track at their work, they were trying to start side businesses that they didn't want the company to know about so they could boost their income potential, but they knew the company wouldn't be happy with that. So they were talking about what they could do on the side. It's early Saturday morning, and they're just going from one thing to another to another, talking about... How could they have a certain amount of money in the bank by a certain age? That's not peace. These guys had worked hard. They had worked all week. But here they're up early on Saturday morning and they're just obsessing about how could they acquire more because the good life was through what they could acquire with no peace. We lose our confidence, our ability to walk in confidence because you walk into a situation and, oh, I don't know that I have as nice a car as this crowd of people has. I don't know that I make as much money as this group of people make. I don't know that I fit in in this social circle because of what I have or don't have, right? And we lose our confidence. We're singing about Jesus being a great king, and in the gospel, we become sons and daughters of God. What does that make us? That makes us kings and queens, Jesus is the king of all kings, but you are a king and you are a queen in the gospel. That means you're royalty. But we give that up when we move away from seeing our identity as that and we move into my confidence comes from what I have or what I buy or what type of job that I have. We lose our calling because we choose, college students, we choose a major not based on the way God has wired us, not based on what would help us to contribute to the world, but we choose it based on what would have the most prestige, the biggest paycheck, the biggest bank account, would give me the most influence and affluence, and we choose our majors based on that. And then you spend your life trying to amass this stuff, and you live an empty life. You hate your life. You're like, man, I wish I could change, but now I can't because I'm locked into all these things. I'm locked into this path, and we miss our calling. That's why he's saying this is an obsession that destroys us. Enter Jesus. Jesus comes to us, and here's what he says in Luke 12, 15. He says, watch out. What do we need to watch out for? Are there people attacking us? Like, what's going on, Jesus? He said, watch out. Be on your guard. 
against all kinds of greed. Why? Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So Jesus comes to liberate us because what he comes to say is, hey, don't be duped. The real life, the good life, the life you are designed to be lived, the life that God had in mind when he created you is not going to come based on the size of your bank account, based on your promotion at work, based on what iPhone or what car or what house you have or what trips you go on or what labels you wear on your clothes or whatever else. It's not going to come through that. Life is not found there. Life is found in him, in knowing him. Now watch this. When we take his advice, when we take his financial planning, and we let it sink into our lives, when we reorient, we do the discipleship work of reorienting around, my life is not based on what I can consume, and my life is based on Christ. Our capacity for joy is not eroded, but it's expanded. Because I no longer need the next thing that's out there. Right? I can have joy today because I know Jesus. And because he fills me up. If I let my joy center be reoriented away from my next purchase to him, then I can walk in incredible amounts of joy. I can walk in incredible amounts of confidence because my confidence does not come based on how my possessions match up to yours or don't match up to yours. My confidence comes from whose son or whose daughter I am. So I can live with confidence. I can walk in my calling because I'm no longer dominated by this career path of just, I need to make more, I need to make more, I need to make more, I need to make more. But I can be the person God called me to be. And I can do the work God called me to do. I can have peace because every waking moment is not dominated by what's the next thing I need to acquire, but I can walk with the Prince of Peace. Man, I'm gonna wake you guys up in the back. Listen, what Jesus is saying is that the good life, the life that you're designed to live, the life that God has for you, you're made for so much more than a life that's just centered around how much do I make, how much can I spend, how nice is my house, how nice is my car, how nice is this, how nice is that. You're made for so much more. God has so much more for you. Such a higher calling. Let me say it again for the people in the back. You have so much higher calling than that. God has so much more. So rather than Jesus coming to these women that we're reading about and we read it as, oh gosh, he's touching their finances. He's, they're, 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 they're spending their money now in a different way. Oh no, oh no. Jesus is actually coming, not trying to take, but trying to give. Not trying to captive, but trying to set people free. To be free to be who God's made you to be and walk in the life that God's designed for you to walk in. That's freedom, and that's what he has for us. That's why this wisdom is for our good, and it's your inheritance in him. If you will do like these women did and let yourself be redefined instead of organizing your life around the lies that we've been fed, that are never ending and never satisfying, if you'll let your life be organized around being a disciple of Jesus, you'll be free and you'll walk in joy and you'll walk in life. Now, if you're cheap, uh, if you're stingy, this is your favorite message of all time. You're, you're elbowing your spouse or the person next to you like, finally, you're gonna see my side, told you. That's not the point of this. 
right? We can swing to the opposite error, right? And we can think that, okay, not having things is the pathway to life, right? And that will miss it then too. God created the material world and he made the world very good. So in the gospel, material things are not downgraded. They're affirmed as good, okay? Uh, let's, let's think of another one. God created you and I with taste buds that don't have entirely functional purposes, right? We enjoy food. The Bible says that God created wine, not for its functional utility, but to gladden the hearts of mankind. Jesus, at a wedding, they run out of wine. They call Jesus, and he doesn't say, well, hey, you got water. You know, that's pragmatic. No, Jesus turns water into wine, which if you're Baptist, that messes with all your theology, and that's fine, but he does it. He's the guy you call to bring life to the party. So it's not just what's pragmatic. Uh, there was a tithe in the Old Testament that you were to give to the Lord. You were to save 10% of your income every three years, give it to the poor. And you were, you were supposed to save 10% of your income to throw a big party for your family and whoever you wanted to invite every year. God knows how to have a good time. The Deuteronomy says that God gave the power to create wealth as a sign of confirmation of the covenant. So God is into his people having things and enjoying things and living life and doing well. But when good things become God things, we end up getting destroyed. And so we need to keep God in center place. We need to keep God as the one who gives us life as it's meant to be lived. Fulfillment doesn't come through what I own. And then we can live free. We can work hard. We can do well, but we our own, we own our stuff rather than our stuff owning us. Does that make sense? I, I, okay. We can own our stuff rather than our stuff owning us. Remember the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus. He wants what God has for him until Jesus says, well, you need to give up your possessions. And what we see is that he didn't own his possessions anymore. They owned him. And friends, we're so in danger of just having our lives destroyed and empty because we buy into the lie that the good life comes through what I can have, what I can buy, what I can acquire. I just want you to know God has more for you. God has more for you, and that's the point of today. So as we close, uh, I would like us to stand, and we're going to minister to one another. If you're here today and you need a financial breakthrough, you're like, this isn't about my wants. I'm just trying to figure out how to pay my rent or my mortgage or this deal or that deal. We want to believe for breakthrough for you today. And we want to pray for you. Specifically, if you have a problem with the IRS, we want to minister to you today. We believe God wants to bring breakthrough. Okay, that's one group of people. Second group of people, you're realizing as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit is showing you you have been owned by this lie, and we believe that God wants to set you free today. We want to pray and minister to you. Uh, another word that our prophetic team felt was that God wants to heal migraines today. So if you have a migraine, I want you to come forward in just a minute. We want to pray for you. And there are a number of people in here that are being transformed like an apple branch that's being grafted to new rootstock. The resulting tree no longer has its own properties, but takes on those of the root. We're being transformed in Jesus. Uh, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you'd like to start a relationship with him, we want to help you do that. So our prayer and prophetic team will be available down front. But I'm going to pray for all of us that we'd walk in this inheritance that God has for us. Jesus, we love you. You are awesome. You set us free, Lord. 
And I pray for all of us, God, that you would let this sink deep and you would reveal to us the places we've believed lives, lies about who we are and what really makes us significant and where the good life, the good life is, Lord. And you'd open our eyes to see the good life that we have in you, the best life, life as it's meant to be lived, and we would live that life to the full. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.